This is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! Natural and surreal, custom camera, Halliman H18, and more. Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 351 for Sunday, June 18th, 2023. And today is Father's Day. So I just wanted to take a moment and wish a happy Father's Day to all the dads out there that are listening to the show. I hope that you're Family does some special things for you today, maybe breakfast in bed or a nice lunch or dinner at your favorite restaurant, and hopefully you get some cool gifts, not cheesy ties and stuff like that. Uh, But to all the dads out there, absolutely happy Father's Day. I hope you have a wonderful, enjoyable, and relaxing day with your families. All right, so as usual, being it's Sunday, I'm covering the latest news stories that caught my eye for this past week from our good friends over at Petapixel. Captivating photo series combines natural and surreal. Photographer and filmmaker Nicola Troller spent time off and on over the past two years designing and shooting a high-concept photo series under an open sky. Troller tells Petapixel how he adapted and shot the series and more about his artistic vision for the striking images. In Under an Open Sky, Troller stages a fictional village that encounters a series of fantastic events. In his photos, which toe the line between realistic and surreal thanks to compositional and stylistic choices, Troller aims to eliminate the relationship between people and nature and the interesting bonds between people within society. Quote, experiences in nature have always fueled people's belief in the supernatural and have provided a breeding ground for spirituality, Troller explains. As a child, I spent a lot of time outside. Behind every tree, there was something to discover. Nature became a playground, limited only by my imagination. Today, as an adult, I have to take time in my daily life to experience nature actively, and yet its effect remains impressive, sometimes calming on a walk, frightening in the forest at night, or breathtaking on a ski tour in the mountains, he continues. It was important for Troller to ignore his adult perspective, rationality, and knowledge as much as possible and channel a childlike sense of wonder and curiosity about the world. Quote, the photographs show the figures in the lonely moment of discovery, lonely because the initial confrontation with the emotions always remains one's own, no matter how many people surround one. Thus, the discovery of the outside world also becomes one of the self reflected in the images, says Troller. On his website, Troller says he is inspired by directors like David Lynch, Robert Eggers, and Igmar Bergman, along with artists such as Edward Hopper, Renee Magriette, and Cindy Sherman. Petapixel wanted to learn more about these influences, especially Lynch and Eggers, filmmakers well known for their disturbing surrealism and unsettling themes. The contrast between childlike curiosity and the occasional horrors Eggers relies on seems at odds at first glance. 
Quote, the mood I was going for in Under an Open Sky is way less disconcerting than in some of the works of Eggers and Lynch. I mainly drew inspiration from their world building. It's grounded, but with a twist. Something sublime fills the atmosphere, something you don't even know if it's all just a dream. This sense of dreamy atmosphere was one of my main goals in creating the story. That's also the reason I used a lot of artificial fog. Like in a dream, grasping at reality, it vanishes right away, Troller tells Petapixel. Children may see the same things as we grow as we grown-ups do, but they have fewer filters between what they see and what they feel. So in a way, they have a more honest reaction to the world that surrounds them. Those feelings can be happy, but they can t- also be frightening. In the end, it's their curiosity that prevails. I'm sure we all still get those feelings, but sometimes choose to suppress them, he adds, explaining that a lack of knowledge and experience can make the mundane seem extraordinary and the ordinary appear terrifying. In Under an Open Sky, Troller hopes that some aspects of each image will be self-explanatory, while others will be open to interpretation, allowing the viewer to assign a unique story to each scene based on their experiences. Quote, I also found in the process of creating the photographs that the theme correlates to the viewer's curiosity. For example, the theme is very obvious in the photograph of the two kids surrounded by light pillars, and most people immediately get the image. But with the photograph of the guy standing in front of the tree, where the theme is less obvious, the viewer starts to discover more and more themselves, he says. Regarding my workflow in creating a body of work like this, I can tell you that it's a long process, maybe too long. I spent almost two years on and off conceptualizing photographs for this series. I had quite a few concepts in my notebook and then tried to find a common thread. One thing was to keep all the photographs under an open sky have no interior sets, Troller explains. Shooting in exterior environments is important because he wants a natural theme throughout the entire series. To make sure that each shot felt green and alive, all the images were shot in the summer when nature is at its peak. Returning to his inspirations, Troller wanted to ensure that even across disparate scenes and when using different models, each image could stand independently while being part of a larger series. Quote, I really tried hard to keep it all in a coherent world, but at the same time, every photograph should be able to stand on its own. I think that's mainly achieved by creating photographs that are close to, but not too close to each other. For example, there are a couple of photographs where there is a strange phenomenon with light happening, but it's always different, he says. Throughout Under an Open Sky and the rest of Troller's portfolio, there's heavy use of artificial light alongside natural light. As is often the case, creating a coherent and pleasing lighting setup requires a lot of lights, especially when working in large outdoor environments. Quote, now, in terms of lighting, I have the same approach as to my world building. It should represent an elevated reality. There are a lot of lights in these photographs, sometimes more than 10, but most of the time just to nuance a single element within the photograph, he tells Petapixel. Part of Troller's approach is building each image piece by piece, so there's also heavy compositioning and post-processing throughout his work. While getting good results in camera is essential, editing also matters. Quote, I also had to retouch a lot of light stands, so please don't assume that this is just a single exposure. It's a collage of multiple exposures taking on location, layered together to create a surreal mood. 
My approach to post-production resembles the one of a painter, not of a photographer, he says. Troller also does motion work and even includes behind-the-scenes videos for every image in Under an Open Sky. These videos are located throughout the article near their respective photos. Quote, I have always been heavily influenced by movies and TV shows, so when I found myself working on a commercial motion project, I found my love in directing the motion picture. It's also very close in terms of workflow to my own personal photographic work. I worked on Under an Open Sky with a crew size that is similar to a small short film crew, Troller explains. There are differences when working in still photography and motion. In motion, you often have to adjust your vision to fit into a larger or a bigger narrative. In photographic work, you can really take your time to tell or hint the story in a single frame. The story in a photograph is way less on the nose than in a film, and that's something I wanted to explore in this project. That, the challenge, and the appeal. One frame, that's all you got, says Troller. Quote, I don't have a favorite photograph of the series. I think it works as a whole, Troller explains. He says his past inspires each image in the series, especially the photos with the two teenagers, the one with the woman, and the image at the sawmill. Nicola Troller hopes to explore more themes with his photography and enter the gallery world. He aims to produce more personal work soon and is writing a pair of short films. Troller's work is available on his website and Instagram. And I wanted to cover this story this week just because I think this was a really cool project that he took on. And I have a lot of respect for all the time and effort he went in that went into creating this series, not only the setup of the outdoor locations and the composition, but also all of the post-processing work he had to do to get the absolutely stunning images that are the final project. And I highly recommend you step by stop by this article in the show notes. And check out his beautiful images, and you can even watch the videos on YouTube for yourselves. You could own the custom camera used to shoot Blade Runner. The custom-made 65mm VFX matte camera used to shoot Blade Runner in 1982, Batman Returns, Species, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind is being offered for sale, letting fans of motion pictures own a major piece of cinema history. Prop Store Auctions has listed the camera for sale. The auction house has previously listed a bunch of other fascinating pieces of film history, like the giant crane used to film uh, Star Trek in 1979, Alfred Hitchcock's camera that was used in Vertigo, Tim Burton's Panavision Director's Viewfinder, and even a small broken camcorder that was used to film multiple episodes of Mythbusters. Mac cameras are designed for shooting compositing effects and give visual effects artists departments the ability to shoot a second layer for masking that didn't come with any of the complications of sound sync. Quote, filming matte paintings requires cameras to have two stacks of magazines known as bypacking, which allows the camera to film a matte painting with another piece of film next to the negative. Thus, both are recorded on a single piece of film in a single glass and show a greatly enhanced image quality of the resulting composite. Prop Store Auction, which has listed the custom-made 65mm VFX matte camera for the sale, explains. This particular matte camera is a very large piece of equipment and is described as first made as a pack camera by George Randall for Pacific Title, Hollywood's premier title and optical house that was founded in 1919. 
director, Douglas Trumbull, later acquired it and used it as the Matt Department's camera on Close Encounters of the Third Kind. In 1983, it was purchased by the Boss Film Corporation that had been established by Academy Award-winning VFX supervisor Richard Endlin. According to Prop Store Auction, it eventually formed the backbone of Boss's Matt Department. Quote, famed Matt artist Matthew Urich used this camera to photograph all the matte paintings on Blade Runner and Close Encounters. It was later upgraded by adding another set of magazines, making it a tri-pack as it currently appears. It was used on virtually every project that Boss Film worked on that required matte paintings, including Ghostbusters 2010, The Year We Made Contact, Batman Returns, Species, Cliffhanger, and more, the auction house says. Quote, known for its steadiness, this camera was mounted to a fixed pedestal that would face the mat stand. It is complete with inner movement, tri-pack magazines, and lens with cover. This lot exhibits adhesive residue, lifted tape, a buildup of grime, and fragile components. The number of high-profile projects this camera was used on makes it a particularly cool piece of filmmaking history. At the time of publication, the custom camera had a single $12,500 bid, but Prop Store Auction estimates it to be worth between $25,000 and $50,000. Bidding concludes on June 28th. The custom-made 65mm VFX Mac camera isn't the only neat piece of filmmaking history currently available. Prop Store Auctions is also listing a Panavision Silent Reflex 35mm motion picture camera, the same model that was used to film Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, and Alien. A 35mm Mitchell BNC-R camera owned by Disney Studios, and even a 65mm Mitchell FC camera, the likes of which were used to shoot 2001, A Space Odyssey, and Lawrence of Arabia. So if you're interested in acquiring this piece of movie history, you might want to head on over to the auction site, Although, if you do, I hope you have much deeper pockets than I do. Halliman H18 Soft Light Review, Product Photography Lighting Made Easy. Product photography is often considered one of the most complicated and challenging genres. Besides having the right lenses and props to decorate the shot, you need a variety of light shaping options to create the best-looking photos. This is where the $399 Halliman H18 soft light brings something interesting to the table. Obviously, to create great-looking product and food images takes a lot of practice and a deep understanding of how light will behave when pointed at different reflective surfaces. To help lower the impact of that learning curve, Halliman hopes its ring light ring light-esque modifier will make it faster and easier to create high-quality images for photographers at any level and at an affordable price. According to the company, the H18 modifier was designed to transform small product food and beverage photography and video lighting via an easy-to-control, versatile, and portable system. At a glance, the H18 doesn't seem that special, but a close inspection changes that. Where you would normally find light-pushing forwards out of the ring to light the subjects in front of the modifier, the H18 instead has its diffusion pointed inwards in a patent-pending open cylindrical design. The modifier itself starts at $399 and has accessories and bubbles that can bring the price up to $848, depending on how expensive you want to go. The question is, just how useful and user-friendly is it? And more importantly, is it worth the money? 
The H18 modifier is pretty well built. The system itself ships in a small duffel bag and folds up much the same as a standard reflector would to save space and travel easier. It's made with a very rugged and durable polyester ripstop laminate nylon and even tempered steel with tough rubber tabs on key stress points of the device to reduce wear and tear along the edges. The thicker fabric is supposed to enhance the durability of the modifier and minimize any chance of light leakage, ensuring the only place light should come out from is the intended inner circle, which is enhanced by the use of an inner lining of reflective silver. While that is true where it counts, my unit did exhibit a little bit of leakage along the inner seam where the diffusion panel is connected. It is quite minimal, and you can only see it if you are actually looking for it. In real-world usage, this is completely unnoticeable to the eye and had basically zero effect on the actual images captured, but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it. When opened and assembled, the H18 modifier has an interior staging area of 18 inches and measures 36 by 36 by 8 inches in total, basically allowing for a shoot space of about 4 by 4 feet if you're in a pinch for space. When collapsed and in its travel bag, the H18 measures just about 15 by 15 by 8 inches. If you don't make use of the speed light pouches, making it very easy to store and travel with when compared to many other light modifiers. The bag includes two pouches to carry speed lights or other small sized accessories that can fit most speed lights on the market, including the larger Profoto A, Westcott FJ80, and Godox round style heads. The outer ring of the modifier has several fixed points that help the system maintain its shape. These ribs are secured using Velcro and positioning along the heavy rubber points along the outer edge of the ring. Then there are the two slots of opposing sides. We'll say they are at the 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock positions for the purposes of this review, where you can mount the lighting system of choice using the included speed light adapters or optional studio light mounts. These ship by default with a Bowens mount, but additional adapters can be purchased to connect nearly any other lighting system, including Profoto, which I used for this review. The Speedlight setup has a system of snap ties and Velcro with a rib to connect to either side of the modifier, whereas the Studio Light uses larger metal and plastic clamp-based designs that connect over the thick rubber outer lining of the modifier. Even though it's quite a simple setup, it can feel pretty confusing at first, so I'd recommend taking the time to watch a setup guide so you don't waste time. Inside of the ring where the diffusion is, you may notice two thick rings of heavy-duty Velcro-like material. These are built to act as a sort of barn door to give you more control over how much light you want to spread on your subjects. This includes the use of some included blackout materials, which we'll dive into in the section below on using the modifier. Finally, the Halliman H18 modifier has optional $269 accessory legs, which lock onto the support ribs of the modifier and can articulate nearly any direction to help support the H18 and its attached lights in a variety of positions. You can use these to help balance the modifier when being used on an angle or even as a stand to hold the modifier upright.
The collapsible legs can extend up to 30 inches, 13 inches collapsed, giving users a flexible range of lengths and angles to position them. At first, these feel rather clunky, but after a bit of practice, this started to feel second nature for helping balance tricky angles and setups. If you don't read the instructions or watch the handy series of YouTube videos, the first setup can be a little confusing, but even then it didn't take me long to figure it out. Once you figure out the intricacies of the H18, setting it up using either speed lights, LEDs, or strobes shouldn't take you any more than a few minutes. Depending on the complexity of your lights attached and if you need stand support, it might take you a bit longer to reposition the lights the way you want than to set it up or tear it down. When you first take the modifier out, you need to connect a few rigid ribs along the outer lining to keep the system expanded for use. These are positioned along four corners of the modifier with openings at the 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock positions to mount the light of choice for your shot. If you use the speed light option, the H18 has a built-in reflective cover to fold over the speed light to ensure there's no light leaked when in use. If you use the strobe LED mount option, the base of the mount covers the entire opening, ensuring the light goes exactly where it's needed and nothing is spilled out the sides. As I mentioned, the inner ring of the H18 has a set of 360-degree Velcro barn doors that, when turned inward, keep the light contained in a really narrow area with a hard drop-off. The idea here is that you can isolate the light in a tight space and only light your subject and not spill out onto the background. If you flip one of the rings outwards, it lets light come out at wider angle. This lets you get a little more light on the product and or the background. Additionally, you could also flip part of the ring on both sides open to allow light to be stronger in one side of the ring so you can manipulate the light with having to change the settings of each flash so often. Since they are Velcro, you can control the light even more by taking the included blackout strips and use them totally block the, right, uh, the light from select areas. According to the company, Quote, this is for situations like if you have a reflection on part of your subject that you don't want to eliminate or some of your subject is too close to the edge of the ring and you want to block that light so it's not hot in that spot. The design itself is meant to be able to reduce the number of lights and modifiers needed to achieve a soft, all-encompassing light setup, which would typically need four or more lights to achieve a similar look. So while it still feels a bit big, it really does cut down on the space and quality or quantity of lights needed to get a very smooth-looking product shot. This was especially useful for me, being rather new to that side of the photography world. I tested the Halliman H18 in a few different setups from the small dining area of my home to some lay-flat and table setups in the studio just to see how good it was and maybe it was the beginning pro the beginner product photographer in me speaking but it was per i was pretty impressed with it yes it's kind of weird to look at it but it actually works really well especially if you want to create that dramatic product shot for the first few tests i used a c-stand arm with a manfrotto last uh last light micro arm and mini clamp combination to hold a bunch of different items and almost straight out of the camera, they were ready to release. To clean things up a little better and reduce my editing time, I simply draped a black t-shirt over the reflective C-stand arm, and that was left with just photoshopping out the actual clamp for the final shots. Other than adjusting my exposure, it was pretty easy to get a great shot right out of the camera. 
Granted, the images could have been made much more attractive had I added additional lights or colored gels for the background, but I wanted to focus on using a Halloman H18 on its own to show what it is actually capable of. And he does have some beautiful images in this article in the show notes that you can check out for yourself. And each of the vertical floating setup, lay flat, and the corner table setup, the $399 Halloman H18 light modifier was the only light used. And each shot was used with the modifier positioned at a few different angles with the inner barn doors held in a variety of positions to make the subtle changes to the lighting. But in each and every case, it was clear that the H18 soft light handled the reflections on shiny, uh, shiny objects exceptionally well, making it an ideal tool for those serious about food, beverage, and product photography. Being new to that world myself, it was kind of exciting to be able to capture images this way with such ease, especially since the modifier on its own seemed to make the product shot with it just pop out of the background. It was pretty quickly clear that spending more time finding the right angles or adding additional accent lights could make the product shot with this modifier absolutely jump off the screen. The only downside would be if you had to photograph larger products and this modifier would effectively be useless for you. For many new to the product world, the cost of entry may be a bit of a deterrent given that the modifier starts at $399 for the base system and goes up to as much as $848 for a bundle with the accessory legs and adapter mounts for studio lighting, more if you need to buy adapters for a light other than Bowen's. But given that good product photography, lighting, sets, accessories, and props are expensive, adding a high-quality modifier like the H18 just makes sense, as it can significantly cut down the amount of gear and lighting required to get the shot, as well as save you a ton of time both on set and in post-production. Are there alternatives? One alternative that is uh, kind of close to in the end result would be the most uh, and would be much more affordable. The $139 V flat world light cone bundle by Carl Taylor, which would require additional setups, but can deliver somewhat similar ending images. Outside of that, though, there really isn't any other close alternatives, which makes the Halloman H18 modifier unique. Yes, there are tons of other light uh, ring lights out there, but they're all front-facing designs, not inwards, as the H18 acts. Meaning you can get other similar shape light modifiers, but they would require a significant amount of additional customization to even begin to get close to replicating the setup, which would defeat the entire purpose and likely make the cost and or space required to use them much more significant. But should you buy it? Yes, if you're serious about food, beverage, and product photography, then absolutely. And it is a really awesome looking modifier. I, I think this is actually one of the coolest designs for a lighting modifier for product photography that I've ever seen. And I was not familiar with this or the V-flat world light cone diffuser by Carl Taylor. So I might have to look at both of them online just to get a better idea of how well they work, but there's definitely some interesting product shots that were made that you can find in this article in today's show notes. Music video shot on iPhone 14 Pro shows its storytelling power. Musical artist Grant Nochi's new music video for his song First Hello was shot exclusively on an iPhone 14 Pro, showcasing another example of how Artists use iPhone's impressive video capabilities to produce professional caliber content. 
Kenochi's video was shot by film director Robert Marrero uh, and tells Kenochi's story of coming out. Quote, in honor of this momentous occasion in his life this year, Grant created a music video and remix for First First Hello, shot on the iPhone 14 Pro. The video depicts various stories of LGBTQ plus couples and individuals finding the courage to live as their true selves and creating expressive creatively expresses these stories in a colorful way, mirroring the pride flag, helping the viewer to follow along in each storyline Apple tells Petapixel. Grant Nochi is no stranger to the music industry. He taught himself to use Logic Pro at age 11, a skill that launched Nochi to success as a kids bop artist and later as a finalist in NBC's American Song Competition. Nochi still uses Logic Pro, and he wrote and recorded First Hello using Apple software to share his coming out story with his loved ones. He shared the story on TikTok, including his family and friends' responses to the song. These days, Nochi is an independent singer, producer, and writer for a large following on TikTok and Instagram. The First Hello music video features actors such as Ava Michelle, Devore Ledridge, Molly Gray, Jekka Jane, and Ezra Sosa. The first low music video is far from the first professional production made using an iPhone. Earlier this year, Apple shared a Bollywood film for Sat, which was shot entirely on an iPhone 14 Pro. The smartphone also powered Peng, Peng Fee's film through the five passes released to celebrate the 2023 Chinese New Year. The iPhone 14 Pro and Pro Max feature a 48 megapixel main image sensor and can record cinematic 4K video at up to 60 frames per second. A special cinematic mode records 4K HDR video up to 30 frames per second. The iPhone 14 Pro also shoots Dolby Vision 4K at 60 frames per second and ProRes video at up to 4K 30p. The smartphone packs a lot of power into a compact and sleek form factor. And I thought this was interesting. And you see more and more stories about this kind of stuff every year where massive productions are being shot with something as minimal as an iPhone. And it's crazy if you go online these days, how many iPhone and iPad video rigs and how much hardware you can find to turn either one of those devices into a fully professional video rig for shooting music videos, movies, TV shows, any of that kind of stuff. So it's pretty wild and a bit mind-blowing. I'm going to take a short break right here, and then I will be right back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the Liam Photography Podcast. The best way to support the show is to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. If you want to leave comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can call or text the show at area code 470-294-8191, and you can email the show at liam at liamphotographypodcast.com. You can find the show notes and links at liamphotographypodcast.com, and you can tweet the show at liamphotoatl using the hashtag. Hashtag Liam Photo Podcast. And now back to the show. And we're back. Squarespace has acquired Google Domains. In a surprising move, Alphabet Inc. has sold its Google Domains assets and operations to website building and hosting giant Squarespace. Squarespace will acquire around 10 million domains from Google in the transaction. 
As reported by Engadget, the transaction is expected to close in the third quarter of 2023. As part of the agreement, Squarespace will honor the renewal prices for Google Domain's customers for at least 12 months following the close of the purchase. Squarespace's domains start at $20 per year, while customers can purchase a domain from Google for as little as $7 annually. Squarespace will also provide additional incentives to encourage Google Domain's customers to build a website with Squarespace and adopt other Squarespace offerings. However, the nature of these incentives is not immediately evident. Upon closing, Squarespace, a longtime reseller of Google Workspaces, will become the exclusive domains provider for any customers purchasing a domain along with their Workspace subscription from Google directly for a minimum of three years. Squarespace promises to provide billing and support services to Google Workspace customers who signed up for the service through Google Domains. Quote, while the majority of the benefits of this deal will be realized in 2024 and beyond, Squarespace believes this deal will be meaningfully uh, accredited to its business from both a revenue and free cash flow perspective over time, Squarespace explains. We are exceptionally proud to be chosen to serve the customers of Google Domain's business, says Anthony Casanella founder and CEO of Squarespace. Domains are a critical part of web in infrastructure and an essential piece of every business's online presence. We look forward to serving these new customers as we have served millions using our domain products and are committed to ensuring a seamless transition. In keeping with our efforts to sharpen our focus, we have entered into a definitive agreement with Squarespace for the acquisition of customer accounts of the Google Domains Registrar business. Supporting a smooth transition for customers over the coming months with the help of the Google Domains team is our top priority. Squarespace can provide an integrated experience of purchasing and managing domains along with offering other tools that these customers may need to build their online presence, adds Matt. Magrel, Madriel, Vice President and General Manager, Merchant Shopping of Google. On a dedicated web page concerning the acquisition, Squarespace promises to collaborate with Google through the transition to ensure the best possible experience for customers. To that end, Squarespace will utilize Google's infrastructure during migration, ideally fueling a smooth transfer for customers. Squarespace will provide a spam-free holding page for users with a Google domain, but no active website. If you don't have a website or don't feel ready to build one, don't worry. When your domain is registered with Squarespace, you can get a beautiful spam-free holding page while you're, you finalize your vision, the company says. Squarespace and Google have worked together for years thanks to tight-knit collaboration tools between Squarespace and Google Workspace, so the acquisition is perhaps not as surprising as it seems at first blush. Citing a source close to the purchase, Bloomberg reports that Alphabet is selling its Google domains business to Squarespace for around $180 million. The transaction details have not yet been detailed by Alphabet or Squarespace. And this is definitely an interesting story, and that's why I wanted to cover it in this week's episode. But it's not all that shocking, because as the article says, Squarespace and Google have worked together for quite a long time with the Google Workspace project. So this acquisition isn't all that shocking, but it should be a big benefit for a lot of Google Domains customers to be able to have everything in one place once the transition and migration is complete. The Sharg Disk is a tiny USB SSD that works with mirrorless cameras. 
Shard Disk is a new super compact, actively cooled USB-C connected M.2 NVMe SSD that is about the size of two bottle caps and promises transfer speeds up to 1,000 megabits per second. Described as an ultra-lightweight and portable MSNVMe SSD, the Shardisk is the latest from the Shardgeek, uh, which has been widespread has seen widespread success through crowdfunding campaigns in the past. It has raised more than two million dollars, and is probably best known for its Storm series of battery bank systems. Moving from energy storage to data storage, the shard disk can be outfitted with a minimum or a maximum of two terabytes of NVMe storage and is housed inside of a tiny actively cooled aluminum shell and surrounded by a silicon case that helps protect it from the rigors of everyday use. The Shard Disk is advertised as a storage solution for those who regularly need high-speed access to their data from their phones, laptops, and cameras. Specifically, cameras that support the recording of files to an external recorder, such as the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera, can plug and play with the super small Shard Disk, and the data transfer rates that Shard Disk promises are more than enough to handle 4K resolution video. Writing that much data can generate a lot of heat, which is why the Shar Greek built a tiny fan into the compact body, which it says is a 13,000 RPM that can help the drive maintain a suitable working temperature. The company states the fan is silent, but does stipulate that it has a working volume of up to 32 decibels, which is enough to hear clearly in a quiet room. It probably isn't loud enough to affect video footage, but it's worth bearing in mind. Quote, we are still continuing to reduce the fan noise and we hope to bring it down to no less than 20 dB, the company says. The company characterizes the drive as versatile since it not only works with cinema or with cameras that support external SSDs, computers and smartphones, it's also compatible with the Steam Deck, the PlayStation 5 and iPads. At this point, the shard disk sounds like a souped-up thumb drive, but it separates itself further from that comparison because the SSD inside the tiny enclosure is replaceable via tool-free method. Shard disk will launch equipped with the Western Digital SN740 SSDs in 512 gig, one terabyte or two terabyte capacities. The drive available in either yellow or gray is available to back on Kickstarter starting at $29 for just the enclosure with increasing costs depending on the SSD selected. At the time of publication, the campaign had raised nearly $300,000. The company intends to deliver finished products by September. And I thought this was a really cool and special design because it is so darn compact and portable that this could benefit a lot of people in both photography and the videography world. And at $29 for just the enclosure, that's remarkably inexpensive, especially considering it has its own built-in cooling system. And so it could be very beneficial. I'm definitely going to have to get one or two of these for myself for use out in the field. AI or not is a free web app that claims to detect AI generated photos. AI or not is a free web based app that claims to be able to identify images generated by artificial intelligence simply by uploading them or providing a URL. Powered by Optic, the company says its technology is the smartest content recognition engine for Web3 and claims it is capable of identifying images made using Stable Diffusion, Midjourney, Journey, DAL-E, or GAN. 
Optic AI or not is a web service that helps users quickly and accurately determine whether an image has been generated by artificial intelligence or created by a human. If the image is AI generated, our service identifies the AI model used, Midjourney, Stable Diffusion, or DALL-E, Optic says. Quote, our mission is to bring transparency to the media on blockchain so all communities can realize their creative and economic potential. The platform spotted by DIY photography is very easy to use. Anyone can upload an image or provide a link to an AI-generated image's hosted location, and Optic AI or not is able to provide feedback on if the image is real or generated by AI in a matter of seconds. The company says that AI or not uses advanced algorithms and machine learning techniques to analyze images and then detect signs of AI generation. Quote, our service compares the input image to known patterns, artifacts, and characteristics of various AI models and human-made images to determine the origin of the content Optic explains. Optic positions its service as being able to help users identify AI-generated images, especially in challenging cases, to avoid the many issues that might come with their use, such as fraud or misinformation. But does it work? Petapixel decided to see if the platform would be able to handle a range of images, both simple and easy-to-identify ones, that astute human eyes could spot, as well as more challenging fakes. To start with, Optic was challenged by a photo Nikon recently released as part of its natural intelligence campaign, and luckily, AR Not was able to recognize that it was indeed a real photo. Next, Petapixel gave it an AI-generated photo a photographer created for a real estate client. It again successfully recognized the photo as fake. In February, an artist was able to win a local photography competition with an aerial image of a surfer in an AI-generated ocean, and once again, Optic was able to recognize that the image wasn't real. The next set of results is less rosy for Optic. It wasn't able to determine if an AI-generated photo of Tom Hardy as James Bond was not real. Instead, it provided a rather unhelpful, I don't know. When provided with a photo where AI was used to change the identity of a person in the image, Optic was unable to tell that the photo had been altered. But perhaps most damning, Optic could not tell that the image below of former President Donald Trump kissing Anthony Fauci, which was created specifically to mislead audiences, was generated by AI. It was also unable to identify this wholly makeup social media influencer. With some of these images, the platform's inability to tell real from fake makes sense. Optic only promises that it can detect images generated entirely by Stable Diffusion, Midjourney, Dolly, or GAN. So the Tom Hardy image, the fake social media influencer, and the street photo with an altered face makes sense. However, its inability to see the fully AI image of Trump and Fauci shows this platform has a way to go yet. And I do think this is a cool website and uh, technology, and I hope they are able to iron it out so it is much more accurate, because I think something like this is going to be very handy as we move forward with more and more AI-generated images. It would absolutely be essential to have a way to find out whether an image is real or fake, as they mentioned, due to fraud or misinformation. That would be a huge win for everybody. And the last story for today, ProGrade's latest gen gold CF Express cards get capacity boost up to two terabyte. ProGrade Digital has announced a higher two terabyte capacity option for its third generation CF Express Type B gold memory cards. 
The company launched this most recent generation of its Gold Series CF Express cards in January, but they capped out at a maximum capacity of one terabyte. That puts its offerings in line with what competitors have available at the mid-range performance tier, such as Lexar's Gold Series memory cards that were announced in April. Most memory card companies offer a set of options at different performance tiers, and ProGrade is no different. The company's CF Express Type B cards, which is the larger CF Express design that works with recent cameras produced by Canon and Nikon, but not the smaller Type A design that Sony uses, are divided into two tiers gold and cobalt. Both have similar read performance numbers, but ProGrade's cobalt cards promise faster write speeds and they tend to test much better overall when compared to more affordable Gold Series cards. Of note, ProGrade's Cobalt cards perform better, but are available in lower capacities to compensate. ProGrade recently upgraded the capabilities of its Gold Line cards, and they now feature PCIe Generation 3 interconnected with an NVMe 1.4 host controller interface. The upgrade now allows them to perform with a read speed of up to 1,700 megabits per second and have a burst write speed of 1,500 megabits per second. ProGrade also states that they have sustained write speed of up to 1,300 megabits per second, which, what the company says, makes them ideally suited for high-resolution video capture applications. To differentiate the new generation from prior generations, ProGrade says that the sustained write speed is now clearly stated on the card's top label, not the burst performance, which is typically printed there by other brands. Now available in a huge capacity of 2 terabytes, ProGrade's founder and CEO, Wes Brewer, says that the card ensures nearly all video capture modes can be utilized while also meeting traditional read speeds for quick offloading. The card features a metal enclosure for improved durability and heat dissipation and doubles down on that with thermal throttling built in to protect the card from overheating. It is x-ray and shockproof, is supported by a three-year warranty, and is compatible with ProGrade Digital's Refresh Pro application. ProGrade Digital's 2TB capacity CF Express Type B card is available for $800, basically twice the cost of the company's recent 1TB capacity card that costs $400. And I thought this was interesting. And we keep hearing stories uh, over the months of different companies coming out with larger and larger capacity CF Express cards. I know Sony recently released uh, up to two terabyte models themselves, but they were a considerably slower card, such as this one from ProGrade, where their Cobalt series is available in smaller maximum capacities but much faster speed so that definitely seems to be the more norm and it looks like we're going to continue to get a lot of healthy combination competition from all these memory card makers all right that is all the news stories for this week Remember to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. It is a private group, and you must answer a security question to join, which is the name of the host of the show, myself, Liam. And I've also opened it up to allow you to give the name of a previous guest on the show to show that you are a listener. Once you're in the group, you are free to post your own original work. I'm also the admin of the Fujifilm GFX 50R group, which is the largest group for the 50R on Facebook. If you own or plan to own the 50R, you can request 
request to join that group, but you do have to answer two security questions to join that group. You can find my work at liamphotography.net and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at liamphotoatl. If you like abandoned buildings and history, you can find my projects at forgottenpiecesofgeorgia.com and forgottenpiecesofpennsylvania.com. All right, that's going to wrap up episode 351 of the Liam Photography Podcast. I want to thank all of my listeners once again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you might be getting your podcasts. Also wanted to remind you to stop by the Liam Photography YouTube channel, subscribe to the channel, and turn on all notifications. Make sure you get your entry in for my 10,000 subscriber giveaway, where one lucky person will be chosen at random to receive a brand new Viltrox AF 75mm f1.2 Pro lens for the Fujifilm X-Mount. Also, make sure that you tune into the show each week, this podcast, subscribe to it, Turn on the notifications for the podcast so you'll know when new episodes are uploaded. And be sure to join the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. Post any comments, questions, or suggestions for future guests that you'd like to have on the show in the Facebook group. All right, that wraps this one up, everybody. I will see you all again on Thursday. <laughs>